Hey there, welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at what makes them do what they do. I'm Pete Townsend, your co-host of Money Never Sleeps, along with Owen Fitzgerald. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialists, top-tier recruitment. If you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it is highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at top-tier recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. This week, we've got another Money Talk special segment where the comeback kid, Owen Fitzgerald, helps me dig into a few of the things that happened in the past week in tech, venture deals, and the topics we generally cover in our day jobs. So let's just get right to it with this week's episode of Money Never Sleeps. Money Never Sleeps, pal. Here we go again. Welcome to Money Never Sleeps. We're recording today from the home studio. And in this episode, we're looking at a piece of content, a few pieces of content, really, from this week that are relevant to us in this big, big cloud of startups and enterprise that we operate in. And hopefully, it's something interesting to all of you, our wonderful, loyal listeners. We've got Owen Fitzgerald back again. How are you doing today, champ? Good, good. Yeah, halfway through the week. I'm happy. Awesome. Yeah. And a shout out, shout out to Pierce Ryan, because when he, when he heard, heard us a couple of weeks ago, he said something to the effect of, I'm not sure if Owen Fitzgerald is a bro. And that's what I referred to you as. Yeah. I, said, How you doing today? <laughs> I had the same conversation with Pierce. So shout out to Pierce. We must get him on for shout a chat. Out to Pierce. I know. Absolutely. He is, uh, he has that dry rapier wit, yeah. uh, which is always keeps things interesting. Yeah. So what we're going to start with this week is pizza arbitrage which I just thought was a hilarious title oh, for a blog brilliant. post. Brilliant. Uh, and it's just, it just makes so much sense. Um, now that I eat pizza without cheese, but I won't even get into that. <sighs> anyway, it was a margins blog by Ranjin Roy and Can Durek on the 17th of May. According to his bio, Ranjin is a former trader with a stint at Bank of America before jumping into the world of journalism, working at the Financial Times. Now he runs his own newsletter management company in New York City, and he loves fried chicken news and also fried chicken. His partner in writing, Khan Durek, who wasn't featured while well, he was referenced in this blog post, he's a product manager at Very Good Security. He used to work at Uber up there in Dig as a software engineer. Great. So anyway, Ranjin's friend runs AJ's New York Pizzeria in Manhattan and Topeka. Uh, and for over a decade, AJ resisted adding delivery as an option for his restaurants. Just to quote from the blog, he said he felt it would detract from focusing on the dining experience and result in trying to compete with Domino's. However, he suddenly started getting customers calling in with complaints about their deliveries. Uh, so again, to quote from the, from the blog post, customers called in saying their pizza was delivered cold or the wrong pizza was delivered. They wanted a new pizza, but none of AJ's restaurants delivered. So what happened was that he realized that a delivery option had mysteriously appeared on their company's Google listing, and the delivery option was created by DoorDash. Long story short, DoorDash had started taking orders for AJ's pizza and then placed the orders themselves, picked up the pizzas, and delivered them to DoorDash customers, Okay. Not a big deal, but here's the catch. DoorDash were selling AJ's $24 pizzas for $16. So what happened was that Ranjan helped AJ to figure out what was going on. They put two and two together, and they figured out that DoorDash later on was doing a demand test before trying to sign up AJ for their service. They went through a few different mysteries of was this a screen scraping mess up? Was this a whole loss leading strategy for DoorDash, who had just got their $100 million Series F from SoftBank about a year ago when this all came up? But then what happened next? To quote Ranjan, cue the Wall Street trader in me, arbitrage. 
So Ranjan and AJ did a couple of pizza arbitrage trades, as they called them, uh, with the first one netting $10 in pure arb profit and the second one netting them $75 when they just ship pizzas without toppings. What do you think of all this, Owen? Oh, I absolutely love this. And listen, it's, this is one of these kind of random newsletters that I kind of forget I've signed up to. And it has such great content. And, and occasionally I come across one that's not only genius, but it's also something I would probably do in the exact same scenario. Uh, I thought it was brilliant <laughs> because I'd seen like it, this obviously came about because of the Uber and the Grubhub news. It was announced last week where Uber looked to acquire Grubhub. And like they're in obviously competition, Grubhub are in competition with DoorDash and like the Uber Eats Grubhub combination will take over like 50% of the market and DoorDash has the other 45%. So, you know, it's it's a big area of focus at the moment in the US. But I actually thought this was genius. But then it, it comes back to that issue that we've always been talking about and we talked about in relation to Revolut a couple of weeks ago. And it was, you know, how do these businesses make money? And this was just a clear as day example of the problem. And uh, I suppose that was what I loved because here was guys finding a way to take advantage of it, but really doing it in such a way that it highlights the issue with some of these companies. And, you know, it's probably not surprising that SoftBank are involved in this. You know, it's a sense of just pumping money into companies and, uh, you know, for growth at all costs. And, you know, I just, I just thought this was a fascinating kind of real yeah. example of the problem here. Um, where, how do these companies make money if they're 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 paying or they're charging customers $16 for a pizza that DoorDash themselves are paying 24 for. Like, it's just crazy. And it's just this growth at all costs kind of mindset. Yeah, exactly. Now, in fairness, I mean, you know, throughout the blog post, when you're reading it, you're thinking about the first two things that they thought they uncovered. Either one, the screen scraping was wrong because DoorDash do screen scraping where they go into one of their clients, which is a restaurant website, and they scrape the menu off using some type of, I'm going to call it a computer program, right? Because it's probably not an API. And then what happens is that uh, it ends up on the DoorDash website. The guys thought originally they might have just got a $24 pizza price at 16 by mistake. Uh, then they thought, was it DoorDash actually on purpose, like you're saying, doing this loss leading strategy? Uh, but then, you know, I think they contacted DoorDash eventually and found out that it was this demand test, right? Like I said. Uh, but still, that kind of falls somewhere in between, well, we were actually, you know, uh, really trying to undercut everything going on here in the market. How can you actually do a demand test for something in the market when you're pricing their pizza at 30% below what it actually costs, right? Of course, of course your demand's you're going to infl- be up there. inflating the demand then. Anyone who is going to go there already is going to go there twice. It's twice as likely to go there now if you're pricing it cheaper. Yeah, it, it just it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. You you mentioned Revolut as well. Like you know the, these volume driven businesses. You know where is it all going to end? I mean, we saw WeWork doing that, and I kind of took note of that when I was thinking about this blog post, Owen. That you know, would you put WeWork into this category, right? Of those that were just giving the house away. Um, now. They weren't necessarily giving the house away because they were charging, you know, pretty high prices for for what it was that they provided. But at the same time, their whole business model was messed up because they had short term leases of their space balanced against these long term leases of the actual buildings or the actual real estate that they had. Right? What's the difference between what you know WeWork was doing and and what we see Revolut and now Uber and Grubhub and God, DoorDash doing as well. There is, there is no, there's no difference. Like it, it calls into question a fundamental, uh, you know, I suppose view of the company and how the, their business model and how they're 
ever going to get to profitability. Like, obviously, they're all getting hammered fairly significantly now, Uber included, uh, in this environment. But, like, that now is really only drawn back the curtain on what the problem is. Because, like, there's a great line in here, and I love it, and he, he, uh, Ranjan mentions that Uber Eats is Uber's most profitable division, and he puts in two smiley faces after, because he said, as he writes, he says, Uber Eats spends $1.2 billion to make $734 million per quarter. That's crazy. These are fairly on like there's the margins in these uh, some of these type of sectors are so small that like really there is I, I don't see how legitimately they can say that they're going to be able to make the volumes that's going to turn that around into significant profit. I don't think that's the goal. I don't think profit is the goal. I think exit is the goal, right? And for the VC fund to have a big exit and that the exit. You know, the metrics on an exit are, are obviously multiples of revenue rather than profit when it comes to a company like this, right? Unless, you know, you get them into the place of going public, which I don't think, you know, uh, well, actually DoorDash have filed for an IPO, I think. But uh, the whole idea is that create this revenue-driven business, profits be damned, find someone to acquire it, call out a bunch of cost out of that business that's being acquired and keep all the revenue. Right. And that, you know, you will and and by having that kind of exponential kick from market share, you will then end up driving the acquiring company into profitability. Right. I don't know how much that holds water, but, you know, you see that in multiple industries. It's a volume game. Oh, yeah. Like, um, and in this case, this particular example, like the domestic food delivery market in the US, so that's food delivery and takeout is 260 billion. So it's, you know, the, who can get the biggest chunk quickest? And they're going to throw money at that. But then it's, a, okay, well, I have this massive market share. Like, like you said, Uber now with Grubhub will have 50% of the market, but they're losing. They lost 471 million in the last quarter. You know, that's all well and good owning the market. But clearly, you know, it's is that sustainable? I suppose it's sustainable if you still have a soft bank or whoever pumping money into you. But yeah. when yeah. you're already listed like an Uber or something, well, then, I don't know, it, it just, it, it, Calls into question, I suppose, your core kind of fundamentals on you know how on business models and how things are run, and it just some of these things just don't make sense. Where, where do you, where do you see it all ending? Where do you see it all going? Uh, well, I, I mean, the reality is in in this example, like Uber Eats and Grubhub have fifty percent of the market, so of course, like these things will continue, and they'll just continue to raise money because it will continue to drive revenue growth. It's it's a more interesting one on the Uber side because they're already public. You know, obviously, DoorDash would have been racing to their 45 percent of markets that have been racing to get that market share obviously revenue growth at all costs uh, for an ipo which you said they, they listed in february they filed for in february so that is like that's where it's all going that's the exit if they go public but they're yep. all they're all being caught out now clearly uh, and you can include like say airbnb and others in this you know because of the, what's going on in the market i suppose it's just it's it's just one of these things where where does it end now you know and they continue to just be a publicly traded company that doesn't make money, doesn't turn a profit ever. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, and, and I'm just trying to think about my own usage of these platforms. And I mean, here in Ireland, it feels like most of the delivery places that we order from, and it's not that frequently because uh, it's either sushi, Indian food, or pizza, right? Yeah. Um, and all three of those websites, I think, are powered by Flipdish, right? which is an Irish company. I know who invested in them. I know one of their investors quite well. But anyway, you know, uh, what is it? Just Eats here? I don't think yep. I've ever used them. Maybe once or twice. But it's the demographic, right? I am, 
you know, like I said before we got on today, you know, we're cooking seven nights a week here for the most part. Um, so, you know, we, we don't order out much, but, uh, when we do, it's, you know, generally from local restaurants that aren't connected. Well, they may be connected with just eats or something like that, but we don't, that we turn a nose up at them, but we just don't need to use them. Right. You know, there's plenty of other demographics out there, whether it be, you know, obviously here in Ireland or elsewhere, um, who do use those food services quite significantly. We don't do, Uber never took off in Ireland itself, uh, yep. never mind food delivery, but taxis, um, just because of the, you know, the, the strange niche uh, market here. Um, Grubhub, no. Um, so is it just, just oh, a Deliveroo we now have here as well, right? Yeah. Do you use any of those? Uh, I've used uh, Just Eats a couple of times, but it, like, I mean, I'm living out in Ace, so I can, I need, if I've been in the city centre, you can get Just Eats, and if you're staying in the town or something, you can get that to deliver, but you can't get it out here in, out here in the, the country, as they call it. Um, yeah. No, do you know what? It, it, it brings back into play the kind of conversation we were having a couple of weeks back about Revolut, and it's, to me, it's uh, let's get as many people in and let's sell them as many things, and it's what these companies, I suppose, have done well is that, like an Uber, for example, they have the money now to go out and spend uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to acquire a club hub and revolution looking at, you know, taking on this travel aggregator. That That's the play here is that, you know what, it, it isn't, if, if the goal here isn't necessarily to make profit, but it's to drive more revenue growth, well, then let's use our big war chest. Let's, you know, let's go and raise loads of money in an IPO, which Uber and Airbnb and all of these have done, Facebook included. And let's just go acquire more customer bases. And this is a consolidation play. There'll probably be more of that. I mean, it happened. Obviously, there was uh, there's one or two main players in the UK. You're talking about Deliveroo. They're based in London. And Just Eats is a UK company. And it combined or it merged with uh, Takeaway.com, which is based in the Netherlands. But I suppose fundamentally, it's these companies are targeting how can we get more and more users onto our into our wider platform or a wider kind of ecosystem in whatever way, because then we can sell them multiple different types of products. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder I wonder what goes through the heads of the people at the top here. It must be incredibly stressful just trying to be this, you know, all-grabbing revenue game player. I'd say on one you hand, know, it's a really interesting space to be in, sitting there as an Uber or someone else with, you know, a big war chest and, and thinking, okay, well, where is our next area that we can go and try and acquire a big customer base? You know, that's probably a really interesting space to be in. Say, well, what makes sense for us strategically and who can we go and buy? Yeah. Yeah. Like we talked about with Revolut and travel aggregators, right? It just didn't, you never even thought of that, you know, and I saw, saw this week as well, face or just today, Facebook shops, right? Taking on Shopify, you know, so they're talking about, or not talking about, they're, they're launching and trying out in a couple of markets in the US and in Western Europe, this ability to pop up a shop front on Facebook for businesses, for small businesses, right? Yeah. And being able to do that right there in a kind of media channel where your business may already have a presence um, versus going for something like Shopify, you know, that lets you create it separately. Well, if you have a bunch of users and a bunch of customers that are already going to your Facebook page, well, hell, just sell it to them there, right? Oh, I thought that was a really good, good uh, or like a really smart move. Facebook. I mean, it make it makes total sense. It seemed like a really easy win for them, because obviously their users, the uh, number of users, their monthly average users has grown 
in the current environment and that's been great for them and obviously with more people there's a bigger drive to get stuff being sold online i mean it really seems like a really smart move for them absolutely yeah who knows where it's all headed but anything else interesting you saw this week yes uh because obviously uh, as a podcast host myself and yourself we're always holding out for the day that spotify will come along and buy us in the same way that they look to acquire joe rogan <laughs> joe rogan this week did you see that no i missed that oh yeah so uh obviously joe rogan is like the biggest his podcast i've listened to a couple of times but he is worth, like he signed a multi-year deal believed to be worth 100 million dollars with spotify so his podcast is the most popular podcast in the world he has over a billion downloads every uh, over the last number of years wow they, they've acquired so he has he's never been on spotify he's on every other platform but spotify so he's moving across in um september 1st and then exclusively from uh, the first of january so wow it's really like I mean, it's hugely significant because uh, Spotify they raised a lot of money last I think in the last kind of two years, and they've been acquiring they acquired the Ringer I think and a couple of other large kind of podcast shows with a large number of users, but this is by far the biggest one. But- yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the you know podcasts obviously, and this is you know us speaking to the converted here, right? But I mean, they've just gone through the roof over the last few years just because technology makes it so easy to spin one up, right? And I think I was reading something probably about six months ago that suggested we are just at the very beginning of the business model for podcasting, right? And the the monetization of that. And, you know, where are we going to find that automatic transcripting um, that then just picks up on the fact that I said Revolut or I said re- we work, right? And we'll automatically put, you know, uh, a euro uh, into our sponsorship account just by the fact that I said that, right? You're going to yeah. k- kind of stifle some creativity there, but we're just at the very beginning of it. Joe, Joe Rogan gone. gets over 190 million downloads every month. Like it's 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 by far the most, but like by country mile, the most popular podcast on on Apple platforms. It's huge. I, I've listened to a couple, like he had Elon Musk on that time when Elon Musk was smoking the weed on it and uh, he was making all sorts of outlandish statements and like the Tesla stock prices dropped by 10% the next day or something. Like a lot of people. Yeah. So he's had over 2 billion views to date and it's only been going like two years or something. And as well, he he spun it into uh, a YouTube channel as well, which is like one of the most popular YouTube channels. And I think the, the, the feeling is that Spotify are moving into the kind of audio audio slash video combined sort of space and that's why they were going after him aside from being so big but that's also an angle they're looking to get into where it's kind of shorter video versions of the podcast or something is an area they're looking to get into so really interesting one yeah yeah and a, a guy that you and i know well and who knows if he's going to listen to this one owen but he said something to the effect of ah, i don't listen to podcasts i i need video i need i need to see something going on in front of me and i, I prefer to watch youtube yeah right and <laughs> But I, I think it's it's a it's a mix for everybody, right? I, I mean, I do miss you know my half hour of listening to something on the commute on the way in, you know, over the last couple of months. Um, yeah. And just Monday, uh, Monday morning, I was up on the exercise bike because the weather wasn't very nice, and did my half hour there. And I listened to a podcast for the first time in a while. Um, it was because you mentioned to me check out Morning Brew, so I did. Yep. Oh, yeah, I shout out it. to Morning Brew. Yeah. And Ariana Huffington from Thrive Global was on. Yeah. Uh, and that was one. just on the 12th of May. And I had kind of been following Ariana Huffington a bit. She's from the Huffington Post, um, yeah. you know, and uh, leader, charismatic speaker, really interesting woman. And a couple of years ago, she left the Huffington Post 
um, and started up Thrive Global. Um, and she was talking about recharging, right, and the need for um, leaders and in particular entrepreneurs, right? How can you be at your most creative, empathetic, and charismatic self when you're leading through a crisis if you did not sleep the night before, right? Yeah. And I started thinking about myself, and I started thinking about when I was priding myself on getting only five hours sleep a night, and and you know that stupid badge of courage, right? Just doesn't make sense because you're not at your best. And I said it to my wife, and she's like, "Dude, I just kept saying that to you like six months ago. How come you listened to Ariana Huffington, but you didn't listen to me?" I said, "Oh, well, sometimes I got to hear things a couple times," but she was so right. And that when you start thinking about my own elocution, my own ability to remember things, my own ability to actually use the right word is definitely impacted by how much sleep I get, right? So, and that that recharge doesn't need to be sleep. That recharge can be just turning around and going outside to look at what your kid's doing for five minutes, right? Or even two minutes Um, and just being more mindful and attentive to what's going on. And just, you know, people say that they're distractions, but these little tiny breaks throughout the day, you know, if you can get your crap back together in about a minute, you're, you're, it's fine, right? So this incredible race to get ahead and this incredible race to get more revenue, right? Like we said, yeah. um, just seeing this, this, listening to this podcast just made me think, think a couple of times about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll post that one up in the show notes. Um, yeah. Anything else you saw? Uh, no, that was the kind of main one I was reading this week. Because, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm a big fan on the uh, podcast side, and I just I find it I find a fascinating space to kind of be paying attention to. I know the guys in um, it was the guys in A16Z, our, our good buddies, and Andreessen Horowitz who actually did a, a really good piece on the market for kind of audio and and uh, podcasts. There, I think it's on their website. Really good piece of research on it. So that was fascinating. Um, I'll take a look at that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we might find that and put it in the show notes as well. Uh, it's just really interesting to see where they think yep. things are going. One other from me was Chris Skinner today, 20th of May. We're recording this. Um, did an interesting post on who needs offices, right? Or he started talking about, I think even it's crazy, right? This new normal term is already a cliche. Everyone's saying new normal, right? What is, what is it going to be like? And I thought one of the most interesting things that he pointed out, I'd read it a couple of weeks ago or maybe last week, but Barclays thinking about, you know, no longer needing to put 7,000 people in one building, right? They have all of these branches or these, you know, buildings that are no longer in use um, in suburban London or in different suburbs around the country in the UK. Why don't they just use those as, you don't even need to call them remote working hubs. It's just that, if people are able to all work from home right now, why can't they just travel two miles to go to their local Barclays branch, right? And work from there instead of, because no one's going into them anymore, yep. um, rather than going all the way into the city and spending, you know, three hours a day round trip with your commute, right? And he pointed that out as just kind of an example of some of these creative new ideas that people are coming up with that, you know, now that people are being forced to think a lot differently about having people in an office. Um, I thought that one was quite interesting. Yeah, I read that this morning actually as well. And I, I, I thought like it's a really interesting one because you see Twitter coming out saying people can work from home forever. And it's it's funny because only I think it was only towards the end of last year they obviously had one of their activist investors was given out about how much time Jack Dorsey was spending on some retreat in a remote part of Africa. He was signing off everything for like thirty or sixty days or something, and the investors were going crazy. 
Uh, wow. and, you know, commentary was that, oh, well, Jack is just doing this so we can go back to Africa now. Um, <laughs> but no, but like, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a weird one because I think actually the people who probably benefit from working in an office environment are younger uh, members. Absolutely. Who've never had that experience. Like there's a lot to be obviously learned from the office environment and working closely with colleagues. Yeah, you're more senior, depending on the type of work, obviously, but the more, I suppose, more experienced hands don't necessarily need that. And, you know, like like ourselves, we've been out of the office a lot. So we're not necessarily there all day, every day. Anyway, um, and it depends on the type of role. But I think uh, I like Barclays, or that I, kind of idea Barclays had. I mean, setting up effectively just co-working spaces for your colleagues, somewhere that they can go to and still work together, you know, in that environment, I think seems like it could be some sort of new normal. Um, yeah, absolutely. I was talking to someone um, just yesterday whose daughter works at HubSpot uh, in the city center of Dublin, and they they just opened a beautiful new office, and she's talking about the coffee, the wine, the original buzz of being able to get a glass of wine at lunch, and everybody's just doing it, and then it wears off eventually. And we were kind of you know going back and forth on this concept a bit, and it was that you're right, it's the demographic, right? I don't have use for any of those types of things. So it'd be nice every now and again, Coffee shout night. out to, you know, <laughs> shout out to Paul Smith. The last time we were actually able to, one of the last times we we're actually able to record, uh, in, uh, the offices, of top tier recruitment, our sponsor, and we work, uh, in town. Obviously we made use of the beer tap, uh, at three o'clock, you know, after we finished recording on, on a Friday way back when, um, that seems like so long ago. Right. So, you know, every once in a while, yeah, great. But the, the whole demographic of those 25 to 35, Absolutely. You know, that's part of their life. And Chris Skinner also referenced in his post a an article from a former writer from the Financial Times who had written this whole long article about her experience with offices and how meaningful it was to her in that space. And when she finally left the Financial Times, that her experience of giving her goodbye speech to the whole team inside the big meeting room that wasn't very emotionally draining for her at all. She said there were no wet eyes in that for her. But where she really lost it was when the doorman said to her, hey, Luce, we're going to miss you, right? And when she finally realized that it wasn't actually the company, but it was the office, right, that she missed. Now, she said she had these things over the years called office husbands, right, or work husbands, yeah. that members of the opposite sex that she would just bounce everything off of and had great relationships with that were completely platonic. Um, and obviously, she'd miss those, but she was really tied with this whole experience, the physical um, experience of going into a different, you know, going into the same place every day that was different from her home life, right? Yeah. So it's different for everybody. No, and I, I think a lot of like, especially a lot of the kind of newer technology companies over the last couple of years, like a lot of the reason people are joining there is obviously the work, but it's also the culture. So how do you keep that culture going in a remote scenario? Like you can't. So I, I think that, you know, that's what attracts, you know, that's, that's a selling point in itself. People want to go and work for Facebook and Google because of the culture as well as the pay and what they get to do there. You know, so if you yeah. don't, if you don't have that, is it as attractive to me to work for Facebook from my house in Nice? Mm, I don't know. I know what you mean. I mean, I mean the, you know, uh, another comment from, from somebody else. I can't remember if it was in that Chris Skinner blog post or on something else I read today. But it was something to the effect of a woman saying, I've never been more productive in the last two months, but I never cared as little as I do right now. Yeah, um, well, it's, and it's, su it's, it's su suggesting that that was because 
she wasn't able to get that positive affirmation from her significant work output from her colleagues, her boss, whomever, right? Um, and, there, and, and there is that sense of detachment. Like it's, it's a kind of strange situation, constantly remote and everything remote. You are a bit detached from it. So it's, you don't get the same level maybe of enjoyment or I suppose ability to input into things that everyone is doing when you're just talking to them over a Zoom. You know, you're not catching up, you're not discussing that at, at the side of somebody's desk or, you know, working on, you know, it also feels like less urgency because you're not like running up to someone's desk to discuss something. You know, you're trying to catch Absolutely. them the next time they're available. It's funny because at the same time I saw there were stats out last week about, you know, that people are on average now are working uh, three hours more because they're working remotely than they were when they were working in an office. Yeah, you just do the math, right? And it's like, if you have to leave home at seven, in order to get to work for like 8.30 or 9, with your commute being, you know, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 miles from the city center, wherever you may live. And then it's the same again on the way home. If you cut that out, you know, that's three hours to your day. And if you kind of feel like, well, I'm going to get up and start working at 7.30 each day and keep going till 5.30 or 6, you know, there there goes your, you know, or yeah. perhaps even later up to 7 o'clock, that's right there on top of everything else. But Anyway, was going to ask you what what book you were reading this week. Anything interesting? Uh, I am, but actually, I have uh, Shoe Dog from Phil Knight, which is the story of Nike. Um, oh just, yeah, I just finished that recently, and I, I I'd seen it loads of times, and I thought like because it, it's a, I mean, it's a fascinating story, but at the same time, he wasn't someone a name I was familiar with, so I'd seen it lots of places, and it always been on the kind of business bestseller list, but. It, it never really appealed to me that much. And then I read it and uh, like it's a fascinating story because actually the entire thing is set kind of pre-Michael Jordan time. You know, it, it doesn't even, in fact, the entire book, it kind of ends in, in the early 90s before you even get to the stage that most people would be familiar with. Like, um, But it's a, it's a funny one because actually given the, the context of what we were talking about earlier, growth at all costs, like this is the you know a, a prime example of that. And he just kept, like, he used to run into trouble trying to um, increase his orders from, he was ordering all his shoes from Asia. And he working with his local bank in wherever it was, Connecticut. And, they, you know, every month it was like, you know, the, the next, effectively letters of credit or whatever he's sending over. And the bank was getting very nervous because it was just this two-person company selling shoes and everything. But it's a fascinating, like, it's a really fascinating story. Um, and it takes a kind of turn at the end. He talks about one of his uh, sons who died and everything. But in terms of, I suppose, what he got out of it and everything that he achieved, like it is really a kind of remarkable story. It's a really interesting book. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And the staying power of it all, too. I remember back in the 80s, you know, when I first got into sneakers, as we call them in the uh, States, it, the big brands, what was cool to have were Nike, yeah. Adidas, Converse, Reebok started coming along in the mid 80s, right? And then... Puma were kind of always around. All those brands have stuck around. They haven't yeah. gone anywhere. Oh yeah. So you know, I wonder I wonder what wonder what that trick is, right? And that all of these um, you know, we're starting to see some some of the other retail brands start to go under, but those are the retail brands that are reliant on, you know, having their own shop fronts rather than distributing through others, right? But they're also so, so much there's so much more than like they're like an Apple equivalent. There's so much more than just their the the product, you know. It's the and, swoosh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's just built that brand, and like it's a fascinating kind of case study in building a brand. Like it's funny. I was watching. Obviously, I just finished uh, my ten part documentary on Michael Jordan, The Last Dance. 
which is amazing. Yeah. If you haven't gotten around I got to watching number, it yet. I got through number three okay. the other night. Because uh, they talk about, I don't know, I can't remember what episode is in, but they talk about him signing his first contract with Nike and him taking a chance on this guy. And actually, he didn't want to sign with them. He wanted to go with Adidas or Converse. And his parents talked him into the meeting and he went and met them. And like Nike had projected when they signed them, they gave him a, a decent size kind of bo- signing bonus at the time. And they projected by year three that have sold maybe $4 million uh, worth of uh, shoes with his name on him. Yeah. It was the first time they were giving a basketball player uh, a branded shoe because he was only a rookie and they sold 125 million in year one. Jesus. And, and like the Air Jordan brand is like the most valuable brand in kind of sports or something. So Unbelievable. I mean, he Michael Jordan's a brand in his own right. And he's just amazing, amazing player. Yeah, I, I got through number three. I think I'm going to watch number four tonight. Yeah. Um, but what I, I'm, I just started the other night, the Chimp Paradox. Oh, um, yeah. By... By Steve Peters, which which is really good. It's very easy read. Okay. But the whole premise of it is there are many different parts of your brain, and the two that they're talking about in the early chapters that he's talking about in the early chapters, what you call your human mind and your chimp mind, right? So that we have parts of our brain that are left over from when we were chimps, right? And those are all of the the, the natural tendencies to be emotional about things, to react, to get defensive, to get your back up, to get your guard up, whatever, right? And how the human part of your brain counters that with intelligence, logic, reasoning, and all those things that actually make us human when we left the chimp behind. And it starts to get you to think about your own tendencies and what is the reason for the way that you react to certain things. And like I said, when I was talking about Ariana Huffington, just being more mindful about these types of things. So this is my, my mindfulness week. Owen. I'm really doing these, uh, these things to try to improve. And was talking to, uh, Paul Smith from top tier and, and possible.ie today about, um, some of his experiences recently with coaching, uh, which is pretty cool. I just find actually it's, it's the keeping things going. is a challenge. Uh, I know. I know, but it's that, you know, just, just keep it moving, keep it moving. All right. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I think we've circled the globe. We've covered a lot more than I thought we were going to cover tonight, which was great. Um, And we will leave it at that, but I know we'll talk soon. So thank you. Thank you. Adios. Money never sleeps, pal. That wraps it up, folks. Thanks for listening to us. Try to figure out why the world does what it does. The links for the stories we covered are in the show notes for this episode on moneyneversleeps.ie, so check us out online. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, it's highly advisable that you build a relationship with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for recording and editing this podcast. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. Get in touch at Pete Townsend NV on Twitter if you want to know more. You can follow Owen on Twitter at Owen Fitzgerald9. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya. Money never sleeps, pal.